Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 70, Revelation 9, verses 13 through 19. The second woe. Let's pick up with Revelation chapter 9, verse 12, and the huge warning. Revelation 9, 12. The first woe is past. Behold, there now chooses to come two woes after these things. Five trumpets have sounded. Next, with the sounding of the sixth trumpet, we are given the second of three doomsday-type warnings to those who dwell on the earth. With the first woe, we saw the beast, the angel of the abyss, enter the world, and with him, an army of locust-like demonic beings that will lie, seduce, and deceive people to follow the beast. They will torture many to ensure that they remain loyal and will not fall back toward the grace of God. With the second woe, we see death. Trumpet number six, Revelation 9, 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, now saying to the sixth angel, who is now having the trumpet, release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been being prepared For the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And that is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who now choose to be sitting on them. The riders now having breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths now proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which they now choose to be proceeding out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is now in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents now having heads, and with them they now do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which now can neither now see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Given that according to the code, the number six is the number of mankind, we should expect this sixth trumpet to be focused on the direct impact to humanity resulting from the sixth trumpet blast. Revelation 9, 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, the cry for vengeance. The reference to the golden altar is another way of saying that the voice came from the altar of incense. In the earthly tabernacle, the golden altar of incense stood in the holy place in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood. In the heavenly tabernacle, the altar of incense stands before the throne of God. 
This image indicates that in some way, this sixth trumpet judgment is an answer to the prayers of the saints and perhaps even the cries for vengeance of the souls that we saw under the brazen altar. Let's consider the four horns. From all appearances, the horns were just ornamental pieces fixed at each corner of the altar. However, if you consider this altar as an image, horns speak of power and authority, which is an intense commentary on the power of prayer. And these four horns are set up as powerful guardians which surround or encamp the rising prayers of the saints. Simply said, there is power and authority in prayer. This image reminds me once again of the camp of Israel and how they were arranged around the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites were in the middle with the tabernacle of God, and each of the four tribal heads were arranged to protect them on each side. The camp of Reuben to the south, represented by the man. The camp of Ephraim to the west, represented by the ox. The camp of Dan to the east, represented by the eagle. And the camp of Judah to the north, represented by the lion. Thus, the horns around the altar of incense represents the protection that God has set up around the camp of his priests and Levites, which, as we know, is the true church, that collection of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are bond servants of Jesus Christ. In the throne room of God, however, these guardians, these horns, are not represented by the literal tribes of Israel, but by the four living beasts, mighty cherubim slash seraphim type beings who surround the throne of God, one with the face of the man, one with the face of the ox, one with the face of the eagle, and one with the face of the lion. So what the Spirit is communicating is that this voice came from one of the four, and its command is prompted by either the prayers of the saints or its concern for the saints. The army that is released in this judgment will kill one-third of mankind. Therefore, connecting this cry to the ensuing slaughter it's as if one of the four is crying out for vengeance on the world, a cry in response to the terror and persecution that the nations of the world has exacted throughout the ages on the bondservants of Jesus Christ. It's not unlike what we saw when the fifth seal was opened. The souls of those who had been being martyred for the word of God cried out loudly to Yahweh, even now saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who are now dwelling on the earth. In reply, they were told to wait just a little longer. But now it seems that their prayers are finally being answered. The time for judgment is now. Like the souls under the brazen altar, it seems this cry from one of the four is also for vengeance, for a reckoning. And it arises along with the prayer of the saints upon the golden altar. It reminds me of the blood of Abel, which cried out to God from the ground on which his blood had been spilt. Abel had been killed unjustly by his brother Cain, simply because Abel properly worshipped God, and God was pleased by Abel's sacrifice. And now, like the blood of Abel, the cry is for vengeance. The precision of God. Revelation 9, 13 through 15. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, now saying to the sixth angel who is now having the trumpet, release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been being prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. This angel 
who is now having the trumpet, is commanded to release the four angels that have been being bound by the river Euphrates. These four angels might be demonic since they have been being bound in a territorial realm. And it takes this sixth angel to loosen them. It's as if they were literally tied down to the area at the great river Euphrates, unable to move outside of that territory. With that said, they might be good angels that are bound or tied to protect that territory. It is more likely, however, that they are demonic because of the use of the perfect passive participle, which indicates that they were caused to be bound sometime in the past, and they were continually being caused to be bound, as if they would bolt loose if they could. Either way, they cannot leave until the exact time of their new assignment, leading the slaughter. I want to note that when it comes to Yahweh, nothing is random, arbitrary, incidental, and nothing is left to chance. He is Adonai, the sovereign despot, and all things occur as he is determined. Thus, God has been preparing these angels and fixed their place from way in the past for this extremely specific time, down to the year, month, day, and hour. We could probably add minute in there, but that seems largely implied. Billions killed. Their task is to lead an army that will kill a third of mankind. That is straight up slaughter, with nothing in the text to imply that this is to be taken as a metaphor. Given that we are getting close to 8 billion people on earth, they will kill around 2.7 billion people. This is a mind-numbing number. Never in all of history has any slaughter come close to this magnitude. Hour, day, month, and year. Again, it is all very precise. The year, the month, the day, the hour, and the number of people who are killed. This communicates to us how detailed God is in the affairs of humanity. Remember, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is his story, his ending, and everything in between happens exactly, and I mean exactly as he is determined, without deviation. He is the one calling forth the generations of mankind from the beginning. He is Yahweh, the first and the last. As he declared, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It is possible that this calculation is code. Viewed as an image, this phrase, the hour and day and month and year, equates to exactly 391 days. 360 days in the Jewish calendar, 30 days in the month, one day, and a specified hour. This is entirely reasonable. After all, the phrase time, times, and half a times is calculated the same way. In Ezekiel, God had the prophet lie on his side for 390 days, corresponding to the years of the house of Israel's iniquity. So perhaps in the same way, this hour and day and month and year is to be understood as code. The meaning would be that this destruction is not only exactly and particularly determined by God, but like the five-month time limit that was imposed on the locust-like demons released in the fifth trumpet in terms of their torture of those who did not bear the signet of God, this judgment will also be limited and last for exactly 391 days. But that is if this phrase is code. The Euphrates. Why the river Euphrates? And why is it called the Great River? This is an extremely interesting detail. 
the Euphrates has always been sort of a line drawn in the sand when it comes to the nation of Israel. Technically, it is the outer boundary of the nation as God originally defined their territory. They just never occupied the complete scope of their land grant. The Euphrates is the river which ran through the city of Babylon and the empire of Babylon. During the latter part of the Grecian Empire, it marked the eastern boundary of the Seleucid Empire. And by John's day and age, it was the boundary between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire, which ruled modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Syria. But what makes this river great is that the Euphrates is also connected to the cradle of civilization, as the Euphrates River flowed out from the Garden of Eden, making it a great river. And if that is not enough, this place was a spiritual hub. It was in this area where the angelic powers of evil made their first attempts at corrupting humanity. It started with the Garden of Eden and continued with the Tower of Babel, and then the strange events which preceded the flood, which resulted in giants being on the earth. It was where the first murder was committed and where great apostasies, both before and after the flood, were originated. The Euphrates was also the gateway to where Israel's most oppressive enemies resided and near to where the great world powers of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia were birthed. It is the region where so many beginnings were centered, where man first saw the light and walked with God, where Satan first revealed himself to mankind, where man first sinned, fell from his protected state, and was banished from the Garden of Eden, introducing to the earth all its terrible miseries. In a way, this river witnesses it all. In fact, the meaning of Euphrates captures the idea that from this place, it all bursts forth or gushes out. Thus, the fact that the Euphrates Rivers is mentioned so prominently could have a couple of implications. Perhaps this slaughter starts from this location and bursts forth or gushes forth out to the four corners of the world, where slaughter occurs on a global scale. After all, there are four angels, and four is code for all of God's creative works from the north to the south to the east and to the west. Regardless, this boundary has deep spiritual implications and is specifically called out during the time of the pouring out of the bowls of wrath in reference to the waters drying up, which prepares the way for certain kings from the east. The Slaughter According to Isaiah, during this time, mankind will become rarer than the gold of Ophir, which one can only assume is exceedingly rare. So over a certain period, perhaps 391 days, these demons start the slaughter and are responsible for killing a third of mankind. Given today's population, the sudden loss of 2.7 billion people is simply unfathomable. Whether it occurs in 391 days or over many years, this is an image that we would like to be a metaphor. But from all indications, it is straight up killing. There will be slaughter and death on a global scale. Fiction alert, fiction alert. In the modern fiction regarding the end times, it has been purported over and over again that this represents a human army equipped with traditional and modern technological weaponry, which many guess originates from the masses in China. But given the use of the code, there is absolutely no way to conclude except by grand imagination, that this is a human army. The armies of horsemen. Revelation 9, 16 through 19. 
the number of the armies of horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who now choose to be sitting on them. The riders now having breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like heads of lions. And out of their mouths now proceeds by choice fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these plagues, by fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which they now choose to be proceeding out of the mouth. For the power of the horses is now in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails, like serpents, now having heads, and with them they now do harm. Demonic Army Given both the number of the armies of horsemen, 200 million, and the fact that the present tense is used six times to describe this army, for instance, they have tails like serpents now having heads. The Spirit is communicating that this army is even now in existence, just as it was when John received the vision. Thus, we can be sure this is a demonic army and not some collective of human warriors. This is another one of those passages where John says that he heard and he saw all rendered in the aorist tense. But when he gets to this description of these demons, the Spirit has him switch to the present tense. And John is only allowed to return the aorist tense when he talks about a third of mankind that was killed. What the Spirit is communicating is that these armies are out there. They are weaponized, and they are ready to kill even now. These are armies of demonic spirits who even now actively do harm or destruction with their tails like serpents now having heads. It is so strange that we are first introduced to these four angels that have been being bound at the Euphrates. And then it suddenly jumps to this huge cavalry of demons, which execute a third of mankind. Nothing else is mentioned about those four angels. Strange. The only thing that is clear is that they were charged with holding back this army of destruction. In contrast, we are given an incredibly detailed description of the demonic cavalry that is released when the four angels are unbound. Clearly, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand the nature and character of these demonic creatures, just like he did with the locust-like demons. Thus, in like manner, we can expect that beyond their ability to kill, this image likely speaks of traits which are peculiar to the way the demonic moves and functions amongst humanity in terms of spirituality, religion, prophetic deception, and false teaching. The Number of the Armies John said he heard the number of the Calvary, but it must have been an angelic number and not something he could put down in words. The two Greek words translated as 200 million is just the translator's way of communicating that it is a huge, gigantic number. But 200 million is not in the Greek. The first word, dysmurias, refers to an indefinite number of incalculable immensity. And the second word, murias, means a myriad, or a superhuge, gigantic number. Thus, to try and limit the number of this army to 200 million is a construct of translation and not an accurate rendering of the Greek. With that said, please take note, even if the spirit did want us to calculate dysmurious murius to mean a finite number, like 200 million, it would have blown John's mind, since in earthly terms, that number for an army was as unfathomable then as it is now. For example, at the peak of the Roman Empire, they were estimated to have approximately 330,000 soldiers. And that was the world empire whose army exceeded all other known armies. 
But even by today's standard, that number is unfathomable. The largest army today is China, which boasts approximately 2.18 million active personnel, with another 1.2 million in paramilitary and reserve forces, putting China at just barely over 1.5% of this demonic army. In fact, it is estimated that in our modern world, there are only a total of 20.5 military personnel in the entire world, just 10% of the size of this weaponized force of demonic warriors. Of course, those percentages are calculated based on the translation of 200 million versus how the spirit wants us to understand this number as huge, gigundous, indefinite, and comprised of if this incalculable immensity. Moreover, this army is described as horses, yet there are estimated to be only 58.8 million horses in the entire world. And China has only approximately 3.5 million horses. And even if this reference to horses is code for modern armored vehicles, there are not even a one-to-one vehicle to personal supply anywhere in the world. So despite a lot of modern fiction around this passage, this cannot be a human army driving military vehicles since there are simply not enough horses or armored vehicles in the world for over 200 million warriors to mount, much less for an army that is huge, gigundous, indefinite, and comprised of an incalculable immensity. This army is comprised of an incalculable number of demonic warriors, which explains why they can slaughter so many people over such a relatively short duration of time. Detailed Description Before we jump into the details, let's once again keep in mind that for some reason, the spirit dives into immense detail when it comes to providing a physical description of the demonic spirits that are the instruments or the direct agents of human demise. He first did this with the locust-like demons, which were released from the abyss. And now he does it with this weaponized army of demonic warriors that are released from the great river. Why are these exacting descriptions so important for us to understand? What is the point he is driving at? As with the locust-like demons, we will see that their power to hurt goes far beyond the physical, but is connected to spiritual deception, doctrines of demons, prophetic distortions, and false teachings that mislead people and prevents them from even considering honoring the Lamb of God. We will see this clearly at the end of this chapter, where those who are not killed by the plagues which come forth from these demons, refuse to repent and honor Yahweh. Accordingly, the Spirit wants us to understand that it's through the agency of the demonic and through the vehicle of religion and spirituality, including the religion of Christianity, that men and women are hurt or literally destroyed. This demonic invasion is therefore not to be understood as merely an end times event or reality. Rather, this is our reality now. This is our experience now. Yes, a third of mankind will die, but there are those who are even now being hurt by this army through their demonic deception. Just consider all the fiction alerts we have already unfolded and all the deception and distortion of the truth that stems from these wrong beliefs. Sadly, these fictions tend to dominate evangelical Christianity. As a result, so many Christians are going to be shocked beyond description when those lies that they have bet their lives upon prove to be nothing more than spiritual deceptions doctrines of demons, prophetic distortions, and false teachings. As a result, many, yes, many will apostatize and choose to worship a false Messiah and continue to preach 
a false gospel. Weaponized horses. The Spirit utilizes the present tense to describe how John saw this army in the vision. This is another reason we can be sure that this is a demonic force and not human, as much of the fiction purports. Because this army existed even then, and the text was not pointing forward to an army that would come to be in the future. Yet from the time of John to the present time, there has never been a physical militaristic force of this magnitude on the earth in any nation or collective of nations. Once again, sticking to the code is essential for properly understanding the narrative of Revelation. The horses and those who are now choosing to be sitting on them are described in code, much like the locust-like demons. By the way, this army is not being forced. They are not conscripts. Each of them has voluntarily chosen to be part of this cavalry, hence the rendering in the middle voice. They clearly have a bloodlust. They have been preparing to kill, and they are ready to kill. Breastplates. They are now having breastplates the color of fire, red, and of hyacinth, violet blue or bluish purple, and a brimstone, pale yellow, sulfur-like. Their breastplates on the riders signify the weapons of their horses. Think of a medieval knight having a crest with a sword and a bow and a castle on his chest plate. But the emphasis in this passage is really all upon the horses and not so much the riders at all. In that regard, it is like the horses in the second through the fourth seal judgments. The riders are mentioned, but the entire focus is on the destruction that comes from these supernaturally empowered demonic horse creatures. Heads of lions. According to the code, the head is an image which denotes reasoning and intellect and overall leadership or authority. It's like referring to a CEO as the head of the company. In this image, the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, much like the locusts like demons released from the fifth trumpet whose teeth were like lion's teeth. These horses' heads, being like lions' heads, symbolize that these demons will be savage, authoritative, fearless, ravenous, fierce, and will kill with the ferocity of lions. In addition, since the description is of the heads and not just their teeth as with the locust-like demons, just their physical presence will breed fear and terror. Oddly, this image of the heads also speaks to the fact that they will not be crazy wild animals freaking out on humanity. Rather, with intellect and reasoning, they will strategically choose whom they will kill and to those to whom they even now are doing damage. Mouths. Out of their mouths now proceeds fire and smoke and brimstone, the very elements of hell. And with proceeds being in the middle voice, we know it is not just pouring or leaking out of their mouths. Rather, they can now choose to discharge these weapons at will. With these three weapons, a perfect combination of mortal demise, the means of death will vary, although all three elements can equally kill. The fire burns people to death, the smoke chokes them out, and the sulfur causes swollen lungs with a toxicity that restricts their ability to breathe. Fire and smoke and brimstone are named as the three plagues, not one plague, or literally in the Greek, three distinct wounds. This indicates that life is taken by each of the three plagues independently and working together or in combinations. Hence, to meet one of these horses face-to-face -face would mean sure death. Some have conjectured that this is one plague, not three, described by its components. 
and they have equated it to nuclear weaponry. Others have suggested volcanoes blasting all around the world. Regardless of how it is administered, we know that the source is demonic and the result is death, and each plague or wound is deadly in and of itself. Can you imagine what it will be like when one out of every three people on the earth is killed? The wailing, the lamenting, the weeping, much less the stench and rot that will cover the earth? It's unthinkable. The global economy will instantly be contracted, and supply chain issues will cripple the nations. Those countries that depend upon other nations for food, medicine, protection, and other necessities will be suddenly without. The level of human suffering across the globe will be incomparable to anything this world has ever known. Tales like serpents. For the power of the horses is now in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails, like serpents, now having heads, and with them they now do harm. We explored the power that is now in the mouths, so now let's look at the power that is in their tails. It should be clear by now that the image of a snake connected with the tail has clear satanic overtones, as we saw with all the imagery surrounding the tribe of Dan. Thus, this image is intricately tied to the satanic agenda for the beast and the false prophet and the leadership council, including the kings of the earth, which Satan will turn over to the beast. The tails of these horses are like serpents now having heads, and with them they now hurt, do injustice or do wrong. It is likely that this does not just describe one snake per horse, but the idea is that their hair, which forms the tail, is made up of serpents, each having a head. And with these serpents, they even now wound their prey. From the perspective of the code, the image of a tail is particularly interesting, especially if you think through the idea that it is with the tail that they wound. If the head is an image which denotes reasoning and intellect and leadership, the tail would denote falsities, wrong belief, lies, deceptions, and all that is earthly and demonic. In that regard, these demonic creatures are like the locust-like demons with scorpion tails that brought forth prophetic falsities to deceive their victims and prepare them for the torturous sting. In Deuteronomy, the Lord uses these images of the head and the tail to communicate to the Israelites the benefits of obedience. If they were willing to obey Yahweh, they would be the head and not the tail meaning that of all the nations, only they would be above and not beneath, as the head looks up to the heavens, whereas the tail points down to all that is earthly. In contrast, if they did not obey, Yahweh would make the foreigners in the land the head, and the Israelites would be the tail. Tails like serpents now having heads. For their tails like serpents now having heads. In Isaiah, Yahweh says that he cuts off both the head and the tail from Israel, where the head is the elder and the honorable man. And the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. The imagery of the tail connected to falsehood and deceit is consistently used. It is with its tail, with false promises, that the dragon or Satan, that serpent of old, even now sweeps away a third of the stars, an idiom for the angels, into his deception. With cunning falsities, wrong beliefs, and lies, with the sweep of his tail, Satan deceives this band of angels to follow him in his treason and treachery. And he is still sweeping. According to Psalms 2, they all truly believe that Satan, his council of demonic princes, and all of the kings of the earth, the ruling class of demons, can lead them to freedom from their despotic master, Yahweh Sabaoth. They are convinced they can throw off the chains that bind them to his service 
and to the service of those who will inherit salvation. They succumb to Satan's falsities, wrong beliefs, and lies. And in turn, they do serious damage to humanity with their tales of falsehood and deceit. But since these tales also have heads, the heads of snakes, these demonic beings will likely manifest themselves through religious leaders who are armed with the gift of the prophetic, much like what we saw with Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. These spiritual and religious leaders positioned within Christianity, the heads of serpents, with false prophecy, false teaching, and errant translations of the Codex, will lead people astray so that they commit acts of immorality, they perform lawless religious deeds, and eat things sacrificed to idols, such that they join themselves relationally, spiritually, and sexually with unbelievers, pagans, or non-Christians, all imaged through the union of a Jewish king and Jezebel, a non-Jewish queen. The snake also speaks of cunning, blinding speed, and a strike that can cause intense pain. The strike of a snake occurs so suddenly, and the pain of its poison runs quickly through a person's vein, such that the impact is almost immediate. And since these wounds come from the tail, this harm comes from behind, unexpectedly, much like with the demonic army with scorpion tails that follows their king, the beast. Mouse and Tails The horse's power is now in their mouths and their tails. Thus, it is through fear and intimidation and powerful leadership on the one hand and lying, deceit, false prophecies, and errant teachings on the other hand that people are even now wounded by these horses and are set up to be killed by the plagues of fire and smoke and brimstone. Foreshadowing. This entire scene reminds me of a passage in Daniel, which speaks prophetically of another little antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, but which also has direct foreshadowing overtones to the beast and the man we know as the antichrist. Daniel chapter 8, 23 through 25. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power and he'll destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. Antiochus Epiphanes was a ruler of the northern territories in the Grecian Empire. He is generally understood to be a type of a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Thus, we can expect that the Antichrist, who will become possessed by the beast, will operate in a similar manner. He will be a master of intrigue, and through his shrewdness and deceit, he will kill many holy people when they are not expecting it. People will think that he is either befriending them or making a treaty or some sort of alliance. And when the people of the world are at ease and feel comfortably safe from harm, he will turn on them, strike from behind, and these three deadly plagues of fire, smoke, and brimstone will be unleashed upon them. And it is through these plagues that the beast tightens his grip upon humanity. Those who resist will die. Again, as with Antioch Epiphanes, in our day and age, a similar little antichrist seduced the masses. And with lies and deceptions, tales with serpent heads, slaughtered millions. Hitler's Nazi regime and his band of protectors would lure their countrymen, Jews, into shower rooms, claiming that they would be cleansed. But instead of water, the showers were rigged to emit a poisonous and deadly gas. And it was in these showers that millions were deceived 
and then killed. Perhaps the beast will likewise lure all his enemies in by cunning and deceit, and then uses these three distinct plagues to kill many of those who oppose his rule. This is how it is predicted in Daniel, assisting the beast. In Revelation 13 and 17, we discover that the beast rises to power on the platform of a false and apostate religion. The beast's right-hand man, well, technically right-hand demon, and propaganda minister, the false prophet, causes all to worship the beast. At first, it starts off with seduction, the promise of hope through amazing and spectacular miracles. And as maneuverings are intimately tied to the religion of Christianity, this is portrayed in the woman who chooses to now be sitting on the beast and in the fact that the beast takes his seat of authority in the nows, the sanctuary of God, amongst Yahweh's bondservants. Perhaps like Judas, he does his best work from within. But suddenly it all changes to coercion and force. If one does not worship the beast as God, as the Messiah, they will be killed. As it is with the locust-like demons, the great mountain of fire that was thrown into the sea, the great flaming star that fell from the sky and poisoned the fresh waters, and the darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars, we also see a layered picture of the kingdom of the beast being empowered and weaponized through these demonic horses, which aids in the beast's assertion of authority on the earth. And in this specific event, which perhaps occurs over 391 days, one-third of mankind is slaughtered. Again, that is just something we cannot fathom. One out of every three people on the earth killed. It is beyond mind-numbing to imagine, and it is hard to separate this slaughter at the hands of a demonic army from the activities of the beast and the false prophet. Modern Weapons Diving into the Codex, we find a passage in Joel which just might give us a crazy view of this super-demonic army of innumerable masses. As stated previously, this passage might also identify the locust-like demons, but either way, we know it's a connected image detailing demonic masses unleashed to do Yahweh's will on earth. And this is a critical point. Even though these are demonic beings, they still work for Yahweh's Sabaoth. oath. Even though they think they report to the beast, they are just doing what their master Yahweh Sabaoth has determined. Joel 2, 1-11 through 11. Sound the alarm in Jerusalem. Raise the battle cry on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of Yahweh is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has ever been seen before or ever will be seen again. Fire burns in front of them, and flames follow after them. Ahead of them, the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Behind them, there is nothing but desolation. No one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountaintops. Listen to the noise they make, like the rumbling of chariots, like the roar of fire sweeping across a field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale city walls like soldiers. Straightforward they march, never breaking rank. They never jostle each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. They break through defenses without missing a step. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance, and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars no longer shine. Yahweh, the Lord, 
utters his voice before this army. Surely this camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of Yahweh is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? As stated previously, there have been those who have tried to spiritualize the image of these horses and say that they are a picture of a real human army. They say that the fire and smoke and sulfur are how John would have described the explosions of modern weaponry, tanks, guns, bazookas, etc. Based on the imagery, I can see why they might make such a conclusion. But as we noted previously, there are not enough warriors in the world to comprise this huge army. There are also even fewer horses, vehicles of transport, whether it be tanks or or any other kind of military vehicle. The numbers John gave us militates against such an interpretation. Moreover, if this were the case, we would have to take a similar approach to the story of the two witnesses in Revelation 11.5. Passage, the two prophets of God are able to kill anyone who tries to harm them by the fire which pours forth from their mouths. And since it is more than likely that people are not going to suddenly become dragon-like fire breathers, we would have to conclude that these prophets of God are heavenly armed with intense weaponry and that they are able to pop a cap into anyone who opposes them. We can be confident that that is not how we are to understand that passage. Besides, this army and its weaponization was rendered in the present tense, and we know that an army of this size and capability did not exist during the first century, nor has it ever existed through and to our day. Moreover. Nothing like it has been seen before or will ever be seen again. Once again, this is the reason why sticking to the code is paramount to our having ears to now hear what the Spirit is now saying to the churches. Let's stop here and we'll pick up with those who survive this unthinkable devastation. To get a free download of the full written transcript, with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in. <laughs>